Welcome to Beyond the Dollar, a show where we have deep and honest conversations about how money affects your well-being. I'm your host, Sarah Lee Kane, and this is another mid-season bonus episode which continues on the theme of resiliency. Last episode, I invited some of my podcasting friends on to talk about the one time they faced a hurdle or a difficult financial situation and how they clawed themselves out of it. This week, we're looking back at some past episodes from the amazing guests we've had on the show so far. That includes Anissa, who goes by the name Expat Panda, with her story about the time she couldn't transfer money back to her home country. Then there's Pete McPherson, who moved to a different town and then got laid off. Then there's Bo, who ended up having to declare bankruptcy because he was in $40,000 worth of gambling debt. And finally, we have John Morrow, who, when he retired, unfortunately squandered all of his investment income on MLL companies and was living below the U.S. poverty level and then had to grieve his wife. So stick around to all of these stories. I'm going to distill some takeaways as well as the end of the episode, what we can do when we're going through some pretty stressful times in our financial life and beyond. All right, get ready, grab a seat, and let's go beyond the dollar. All right, hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Beyond the Dollar. So before we start with this episode's stories, I want to talk about what can happen when you're stressed. And so if you've been a longtime listener, you probably have heard me talk about the idea of fight or flight mode. And when you are really stressed, right, when your kind of stress reaction, I guess you can say, is really heightened, you're probably only worried about really protecting yourself and your family. And when that happens, it can lead to some interesting decisions, right? And then maybe you realize, oh, I did something I shouldn't have, right? Whatever that is, or you feel really bad about what you did. And then it leads to this shame cycle. And then you feel so bad, you do whatever it is again. And then it kind of goes on and on and on, right? It could mean selling your investment money. It could mean emotional spending. It could mean snapping at your coworkers or something like that. It there's just a lot of things that could happen and your reactions to it, right? I'm not here to judge it or shame you for it. It's just, it is what it is. Now, here's my example. Given that I know that I'm an emotional spender, I try to really keep that in check or try to make sure that I'm really understanding what I'm emotionally going through and then find some healthy way to work through it. But lately, I've just been extremely stressed and overwhelmed, and I have been stress shopping. And I guess the good news about that is I have been buying things that I do need and that they are from local businesses. So I bought a couple of gift cards from a local coffee shop that I love. I've written tens of thousands of words there. So it was like, the least I can do is buy a bunch of gift cards. I have been looking at farmer's market. Some of them have rented or found a warehouse space where they can have their basically goods there and I can go and pick it up. So things like that. It is having me spend more than usual. I don't necessarily feel bad about it. It's one of those things where, okay, I am at least supporting things that I care about, that I find a lot of value in, and that even though I may go over budget, it's not going to be a total detriment 
to my finances. And I know that's not the case with everyone. So whatever situation that you're finding yourself in currently, financial, otherwise, it's really important to acknowledge your feelings because when you're in that fight or flight mode, you may not be thinking properly. Again, you're just really concerned about your immediate well-being. Again, that's not a bad thing, but it can lead you to some irrational decisions. So work through your feelings, right? Acknowledge that they're there, right? You may not be able to work through all of it, but at least acknowledge that they're there. And then that way, when you're a bit calmer and you're out of that fight or flight mode, you can figure out the practical steps you need to take next in order to improve or maintain your financial situation. Now, I would love to introduce you to the first past guest I had on Beyond the Dollar about how she worked through that. So for Anissa, also known as Expat Panda, she moved to a new country. So she was from South Africa and moved to a couple of countries in the Middle East and I think was in South Korea for a little while. So anyways, when she moved, everything can feel really unfamiliar. And so I remember moving to China and even simple things like mailing a package was really stressful or it just turned into this big production. So for her, it was one of those where she really was concerned about her password and her ID, which I think are things we take for granted, or the ability to send money to a loved one or home, right, in South Africa. So here is a clip of her talking about that. Okay, so I will talk about two different experiences because they were very different from each other. So the first country I moved to in the Middle East was Kuwait. If you don't know, Kuwait is basically the richest of the Gulf countries. And they're one of the smaller ones, although not the smallest, that's Bahrain. So I moved to Kuwait and I did know that I would have to have some money. So I did take about one salary's equivalent with me. I did get paid at the end of the month. So basically I arrived beginning of September and I did get paid at the end of September. And I was very fortuitous because I know that's not the case with a lot of jobs abroad. But the problem was that by this time, my paperwork had not been sorted out, not through any fault of my own, but mostly because I was working for a very, let's say, relaxed employer. <laughs> yes. And of course, I was also living in a very relaxed country when it comes to these kind of things. So my paperwork wasn't processed, which means that I couldn't get a bank account. So I got a check. I had to go to the bank and cash a check. And where I'm from, like, I missed the whole cashing a check phase in life. This is not a thing that was normal for me. So I had all this cash and, you know, I was literally like storing it under the mattress because what do you do? Like I never had to face this kind of problem previously. And then I couldn't send money to South Africa easily. I'd have to go and look for a money exchange place. And most of them were only sending money to the Philippines or to Sri Lanka or Bangladesh or India or Pakistan because that was the majority of expats in Kuwait. And South Africa is very much in the minority. So I remember one afternoon, I literally went to like six different places looking where I could send money to South Africa because I had expenses back home. I own an apartment and I had things to pay off. And, you know, the reason you move abroad for most people is to... Save money, of course, but also to maintain the existing expenses that you do have. So anyway, I eventually found a place to send money via and that was all right. I mean, it was really inconvenient, but what can you do? So I arrived in Kuwait in September and I'm not kidding you. I only got a bank account in January of the following year. Wow. 
So all that time, I was just accumulating cash. And this is honestly the most inconvenient thing. And I probably sound like such a whiner, like, oh, yeah, but you were earning money. But like, you just take for granted the convenience of having a debit card. Like imagine going to the mall and you don't know how much money you're going to spend. So now what do you do? Like, do you take a whole envelope of like, just wads of cash? Like, it was just the most ridiculous thing for me. So that was really inconvenient. The paperwork in Kuwait took forever. So that was my experience there. So I was earning money, but I was getting in cash. Now, when I came to the UAE, I came in with a, how can I say it? Like a big group of people because we came through an initiative to teach in the public schools in Abu Dhabi. So it was like maybe a thousand of us had arrived within one week. We went through an orientation program. We were given options for housing. We chose our housing. And then the company gave us 20,000 dirhams as a furniture allowance. Now, this was the only money we got for three months. And the reason for the delay was because they wanted to process everybody's visas. So these thousands of people that had come in and then open everybody's bank accounts and then pay us. There was no option for cash or checks because this was, this is the government. Like, you know, mm-hmm. there's no way to go into someone's office and collect it. Like that, that wasn't a thing. So yeah, I was without a paycheck for three months. I have to say for myself, I was coming from Kuwait. I had saved money, so I was perfectly okay. But it was a real struggle for people who had just moved from their home countries. Although we were told to anticipate this kind of delay. So we did have forewarning from the employer. Eventually, the paperwork was done and the bank accounts were opened and we did get all our money. We were back paid. So that was really great. But yeah, it was a very different experience, like between Kuwait and here. Here, the paperwork was done really fast. Like I got my passport back within the first two or three weeks. Whereas in Kuwait, my passport was kept by the employer for the like three or four months. So it was really a very different kind of situation. But yeah, what I've learned is you just have to over budget. Like when you first start that contract, you have to come with more money than you think you need. Because when you first move somewhere, you have a lot of expenses that you may not be thinking about when you are in your home country. Like just simple things like buying things for your home, you know, buying a set of pots and pans or buying extra blankets, things like that. You need money to be able to buy those things. And I've always found that the first two months are the most expensive, actually, when you move somewhere. So yeah, I definitely have to over, over budget when it comes to that. Things do settle down. A lot of people rely on their credit cards to get them through that phase. I mean, whatever works for you. But yeah, the initial moving, it's tough emotionally and financially. All right. So I just want to talk about the 20,000 Durham dollars. So that's from obviously the UAE, so United Arab Emirates. And that for Americans is about 5,400 US dollars. So obviously currency exchanges might change, but that's about that much for her. And so if you think about it, that amount doesn't sound small for three months, but if you're moving somewhere new, like she mentioned, you have to buy a lot of things. You might need to buy furniture. You might need to buy things like a bunch of towels. 
Maybe you are in a foreign country and you keep accidentally buying shampoo instead of conditioner, like things like that. So little mistakes like that. But when you're on a very limited or fixed income, these small little things can just feel really huge on top of feeling maybe overwhelmed or lonely, especially when you're in a really unfamiliar place. So the lesson I think we can take from Anissa's story is to just be patient and be as adaptable as possible. So for her, having to find a way to send money to South Africa to pay for bills and things like that proved to be a lot more difficult than it needed to be. And so either she had to wait, have all that cash under her mattress, try visualizing that, or kind of finding a workaround for her situation. And another takeaway is to really prepare for the things that you may take for granted. Now, I do want to say one caveat is that sometimes maybe you're finding yourself in a situation now and you haven't prepared. That's totally okay. But what I do want to suggest is to find anything you can to make sure that you are as prepared as you can be for the upcoming weeks or months or whatever it is that you're dealing with. And so that could mean unsubscribing from Netflix or Hulu or whatever streaming app you use and saving that money, right? Every penny can count. And really finally, I think Anissa said this best, if you need to rely on credit cards or debt or something, so be it. Give yourself some grace. If let's say this is your first time taking on some debt, that's fine. I think you just got to do what you got to do to survive, really, for lack of a better term. Now, I do want to be clear, using your credit card or loans can be fine if you're going to make a plan to pay for it. Now, for Bo, another past guest, his spending got out of control to the point where he ended up declaring bankruptcy from his $40,000 of gambling debt. It's uh, your gambling... Maybe you start losing and a lot of it is chasing losses, right? I mean, you're gambling for whatever reason. For me, it was, you know, because I had attention deficit disorder. I, I wasn't uh, aware of that. It was making me not able to, well, it was making me miserable. I couldn't really cope with life in the regular way. So I turned to gambling. And, but gambling brings into this, oh, I can win it back. I can win it back if I just increase my bets or whatever it is, try a different game or, oh, I, I know how to do this. There's skill involved in this one, right? Which is a, a you know huge fallacy, of course. But you know when you like get to a certain point, to realize that you're never gonna like fix this by gambling. And and mine was um, you know I I won a jackpot. It was twenty thousand dollar jackpot, and I was like all my problems will be solved by this jackpot. And then a half an hour later, all that money was gone, and it was just it was devastating, and also a hugely important moment of my life all at the same time, because that's when I realized I'm never going to get out of this by gambling. And I got to figure out what is wrong with me and try to put a stop to it. And of course, that takes time. And then when you have all this debt hanging over you, you're like, well, I can't even keep up with these minimum payments. So I started looking into bankruptcy. I never thought about it as an option before, but you know, this like I didn't know where else to go. And when I looked into bankruptcy, I found that there were two options in Canada, and they're very similar to, I believe it's uh, Chapter 11 and Chapter 13. Whatever regular bankruptcy is in the US, that matches our bankruptcy. 
And then chapter 13, I believe, is closer to our consumer proposal where you just pay less than like you would. Not zero, but you pay, like your debt is reduced, right? You talk to the creditors and say, hey, I can't pay all of this. Would you take this amount instead? So about that time, I was at 40 grand and I went to an insolvency trustee in Canada and I said, hey, I think I need to file this consumer proposal. So they looked at all my info and they said, okay, um, you know, this 40,000, we're going to go to your creditors and say, would you take 15,000? And it's going to be 50 payments, monthly payments of $300. It's all fixed. And the creditors accepted it. And that kind of saved my life. That was really the, the first step to take in order to start working on, you know, now how do I stop gambling? So one of the best takeaways I think we can all get from this story is that your mental health can really affect your financial health. And so it took Bo quite a long time, and I encourage you to check out the episode, episode 60, is that he had an undiagnosed ADD for a long time. And because of that, he ended up, like he said, using gambling as a way to cope. And so if, you know, even if you're not diagnosed with anything, even if you're just feeling anxious in general, right? It's not a, you know, diagnosis or whatever. Whatever your mental state is, it can really affect what you do, right? Like my example of stress spending on my local coffee shop, right? Things like that, it can happen. And so for him, he really worked on his mental health. He found coping mechanisms for him. He accepted that he might need medication to work through it. Whether or not that's your case, right? That's something that you got to figure out. But once he did that, he really was able to claw his way out of the debt, right? Be okay with the fact that he had to declare bankruptcy. And now he is helping others who are in the same position or need to declare bankruptcy. So I really love the fact that he was able to turn that around despite a lot of the really dark times that he went through. So that story is always one of hope for me whenever I listen back to it. I do want to say that it is one thing to declare bankruptcy. It is not the solution for everyone. Maybe you're in a position where you do have an emergency fund or some extra savings or you have a plan to work through it, right? relying on those savings. It might be what you need to get through a very trying time. For Pete McPherson, his story was on episode 55. He had a bit of a buffer account. He moved to a new town so that he could take a new job, right? He admitted that he took a pay cut and so that he can basically ramp up some of his side hustles, right? His Him and his wife had a plan and then basically he ended up getting laid off. So here is what happened. I did, quite frankly, like the quote unquote American dream. Like I was in accounting, I had my CPA license. I didn't really want to do this, by the way, like be an accountant, have a CPA. I just didn't know what else to do during college. I was just kind of funneled through life, so to speak, by my teachers and parents and counselors or whatnot. I didn't really want to be an accountant. I just thought, hey, I can get a job here, which was true, by the way, in 2009. So I'm at corporate America. I don't want to be there, but I don't really know what else to do. So I keep working and I keep working in public accounting. And then I got another job and $7 billion hospital chain. It was a great job. I got paid a lot. I kept getting pay raises every year and kept getting promotions. And my wife and I bought a house and I had a nice car. And then we started having kids. And it was like textbook 1955 American dream 
this is what life is about. And of course, as a lot of the people that probably listen to your show, Sarah, realizes that that's not necessarily the American dream for everybody. So sure enough, I started looking for a way out. This was probably like 2013, 2014, still working full time as an accountant, but starting to do more side hustles, like trying to figure out a way out, so to speak. And it took me a good two to three years to kind of get comfortable, even just knowing what I'm doing, starting a side hustle, starting an online business, stuff like that. And at some point, I got fed up. This was probably like early 2016 at this point, something like that. And my wife and I had a chat and we were like, okay, what what do we do? We want to get out. She wasn't necessarily enjoying this either. She was a full-time piano and voice instructor and accompanist in Atlanta, Georgia, where we're from. What do we do? So I took this job at a small startup, which shall remain nameless for reasons you'll find out in just a minute. And they were going to pay me a little bit less than I was making as a CPA for sure, but still like a salary and still benefits and health insurance and like all that great stuff. But I only had to work part-time, like 20, 30 hours a week. So in my head, I'm thinking, jackpot, (laughs) jackpot. I get to work half-time. I still, you know, I don't make quite as much money, but it's fine. We have some reserves. We got some emergency funds. I can handle that. And this will allow me to do side hustles more. It'll allow me to focus more on starting another blog or starting a podcast again. I haven't done it in years now or, you know, continuing on side hustle path, yada, yada. So we moved, by the way, we moved from Atlanta to my hometown, Rome, Georgia. I still love it here. We're still here three and a half years later. And at this point, we have one child. My wife is pregnant with child number two. We move all of our belongings. We put some stuff in a storage unit. We stay in my grandmother's house. She's not here. She's in a nursing home, but her house was relatively empty. So we moved in there temporarily. And I start this job at the startup and I'm getting excited to do more things on the side and stuff like that. And then I get laid off two weeks later, three weeks later. I wasn't necessarily laid off. They just told me that we don't have any money and we can't pay you anymore, which is kind of like being laid off, I guess. So that is the long way (laughs) to answer your question. But those were all the events that led up to this. Oh, one more thing. My wife stopped working. Like she was going to be full time, stay at home mom. Maybe teach some piano lessons on the side, but she she quit her job. Jobs, plural, meaning there's one income. I take a pay cut to take the startup job and then get laid off. So that's the the two incomes down to zero, if you will. So there's the backstory. All right. I don't know about you, but the idea that you would have this plan and then it just goes to crap, I guess lack of a better term, is it can be really shocking. So just to clarify, he was making about, or him and his family, sorry, was making about $80,000. And then when he decided to take that new job at the startup, it went down to $40,000, right, give or take. And so that's about half of what he was making. And so what I really admire about Pete's story was that luckily, he said, luckily, we had a savings account with money and it happened to be from selling his home. And I think he had a little bit on top of that. And so you may not have time to save for an emergency fund. Maybe find some way to sell something or hold on to the money that you do have. So that means cutting back on spending in order to find some buffer room. And I know this is not the solution for everyone, right? Pete was able to hold on to the existing money or like lower his expenses by living in his grandmother's house. So if that's a solution, that's a solution. And 
He slashed the budget, right? He looked at every subscription, did a massive audit of his lifestyle and his finances, right? In these extreme circumstances, this is temporary. You just got to do what you got to do. And if you heard, right, he talks a little bit about regretting not having some sort of safety net before switching jobs. And so, yeah, he did feel a little bad about it. But I think what's really great about this story is that he was able to really channel that fight or flight mode into, okay, what is my plan? How am I going to make income? And so out of that, he was able to build up his blog. I think his wife took on some part-time jobs and he's in a better position now. So really encourage you to listen to the entire story. Again, episode 55. Now, final story. If you happen to think there might be a time when it's too late to even take care of your finances, let's say you're you know, at least 60 or older, I want you to listen to John Morrow's story. This is episode 61, so the very last episode of season five. And what's really admirable about John is he went through a lot in his life. And what ended up happening was he was going through cancer treatments. He was dealing with remission. Him and his wife were living on about I think 40% of what they had to live on because of the lack of social security income they had. And then she passed away suddenly. And John ended up living on about 23,000 US dollars a year, which is about at the poverty level. And so here is him talking about. The uh, situation here is that we are just over three months past my wife dying unexpectedly of cardiac arrest after we were married for almost 46 years. We were living solely off of Social Security income and a small pension from the company that we worked for because we both spent the last 17 years of our working life working for the same company. When she passed away, we had clearly not laid the foundation for my continuation and being able to meet the obligations that we had. So basically, the result was, whereas after we retired in 2013, Living on 40% of what we were making when we were working full-time, we're now, I'm to the point where I'm living on basically about 21% of what I made. All right, I just want to clarify and break some things down. Now, I do want to just put a disclaimer that I am not an expert in Social Security or retirement benefits. This is really just from what John had mentioned in his story. So his pension which is kind of a retirement savings account of some sort, was to really meant to provide a supplement for Social Security, which is his government benefits. For some people, maybe it's the other way around, but because John didn't really set aside money or kind of other decisions he made, he just didn't have enough there. He also had a lower income now that his wife has passed because of what's called the survivorship benefit. And so what happens with a survivorship benefit is that if your spouse passes away and you're deemed eligible, you may be able to get a portion of what they would have gotten for their social security benefits. Now, that's only if your spouse makes more than you. And so in John's case, because his wife made less than him, he was not able to get it. And so now he's, again, living on $23,000. And for him, he also had to deal with a lot of the mental anguish, obviously. And here is him talking about working through that. 
in retrospect and in talking with counselors since my wife has passed away who are specialists in grief counseling, they were telling me that I actually was suffering from a form of clinical depression. And it was that nagging thing which I chose to think I was ignoring, but I wasn't. And that was that I'm damaged, damaged goods. And I didn't like that feeling. And then when I lost my wife, uh, it just left me as a guy sitting here with a house and the responsibilities of caring for that house. But everything about what I do just sort of fell by the wayside. I didn't quit. I just stopped. And I spent a tremendous amount of time over the course of the first month and a half, almost two months, just trying to occupy myself with busy stuff as if that was going to get me over this grieving problem that I was dealing with, this loneliness that is horrible. So I finally reached out and got help. And I would tell anybody, don't be ashamed to ask for help. Doesn't mean that you're any less of a person. There are organizations, especially through hospice, that are there to help not just the victims, but to help the loved ones of the victims. And especially for those of us who lose someone we love for whatever reason, and we have to go on without them, and it leaves this gaping hole in our lives. And so once I started getting counseling through a hospice organization here in the city of Lakeland, where I live, I began to come to grips with my emotions and my feelings. And I also began to understand that my life has been forever changed. And now I am the person that must go forward and I must go forward with some degree of determination to be successful, but don't ignore the fact that I miss my wife. I miss her terribly. I don't know about you. My heart broke when he talked about him being damaged goods or thought he was. I'm very thankful that he was able to take advantage of counseling sessions and work through the grief that he felt. And I think that Grief can come in all forms. It can be grieving a loved one. It can be grieving your financial situation, which I'll get into in about a minute. It could be grieving a lot of other things. And so I don't know about you. I can certainly relate wanting to keep myself busy from feeling my feelings. And unfortunately, in my experience and a lot of people I know, that can really have some dire consequences. And so for John, as he worked through those, he was able to find some way to work with his financial situation. And so it not in any of the clips, but I want, again, encourage you to listen to episode 61. Some of his solutions were really selling some of his existing items to make some extra income. I think he's looking into getting a part-time job. He is reading finance books from the library, so that's free for him. And he's been really leading on his community. So he goes to church, he has Toastmasters, hit he attends regularly. And so he's not feeling so alone because he has a group of people around him. So I encourage you to use some of those solutions that he's come up with in your own life. So as you can see, all four of these previous guests have displayed a lot of resiliency, as in they have acknowledged a situation and they've managed to work through it. And to be honest, another really common aspect of this is really moving through what I would consider the stages of grief and some literally more than others, right? For example, John was grieving his wife. And so what are the stages of grief? Like, what does it mean? It's really about the, right, in the beginning, maybe you're in denial about it, then you acknowledge it, 
you bargain with it, you feel angry, like you feel all the emotions, and then acceptance is kind of moving on. And I think in certain situations, particularly financial ones, we can kind of move through all of these stages really quickly. We can cycle back, especially if there's multiple things that we're dealing with. And so I think the probably the second step, right? Sometimes, yes, we're in denial that this exists, but to move through it, to be resilient in our finances, right? And beyond is to really acknowledging the feeling. Because if you don't, that's when this fight or flight mode is really going to rear its ugly head and it's going to unfortunately lead to a lot of irrational decisions, like I mentioned before. And when you do acknowledge whatever is happening, I do want to stress it's okay to feel sad for whatever is happening, even if it feels like a first world problem. So for example, I go through you know, different clients and some will let go me go because of budget constraints, whatever, but then I always end up picking up work. And so I go through this cycle where I get upset if that happens, but then I'm like, no, it's fine. I make more than enough money. This is totally first world problem. Like, who am I to be upset by that? But I think since then I've worked through like, it's okay to feel what I feel. So if you're sad at not being able to spend an extra hundred dollars on that camera you want, that's okay. It's your feelings. You're not not acknowledging the fact that other people may have it worse than you. It's just you're feeling that emotion. And so it's okay. It's not about comparison. It really isn't. Then I think at the next step is before maybe you find a solution is to find some way to really find some emotional support. And so it could be meditating. It could be talking to a therapist. It could be talking to a financial counselor talking with your friends, reading a book and feeling really comforted by that, whatever it is, finding that emotional support, acknowledging those feelings, allowing yourself to feel sad or grief or whatever that emotion is coming up. And then once you've kind of worked through that, then you can go and find the solution. And that can be the acceptance step is where, okay, I accept that this is happening or happened. I accept that this is how I feel and I'm going to try to find some way to move forward. And again, I do want to emphasize you can feel all of these things all at once. You can take a lot of the same actions all at once and you could even cycle back to the beginning where you're feeling denial all over again. And again, it's okay. Be gentle on yourself. If you're going through a tough time, I do want to say you can work through this. You are resilient. Humans are resilient. Rely on your community and know that you are stronger than what you think that you are capable of. All right, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, feedback, topics you want to talk about, please email me hello at beyondthedollar.co or go on Instagram at beyondthedollar. I am admittedly now addicted to the app again, so please find me there. Feel free to slide in the DM. All right, everyone, until next time. Thank you so much for listening in on Beyond the Dollar. If you like what you heard, please share with a friend. It'll help share the mission of what we're trying to do, which is to have more deep and honest conversations about how money affects our well-being. So tag them on Instagram when I post up in the dollar or send them a link, whatever you want to do to spread the mission of what we're doing around here. Now, if you feel that putting money towards the things that really matter is a challenge for you, feel free to download the Value Space Spending Guide. So what it is, is you're going to be able to gain clarity around what matters most to you in life, 
be able to name your most important values and how we can start putting money towards those things. So to download the values-based spending guide, go to beyondthedollar.co slash values. So thank you again for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode of Beyond the Dollar. By the way, thank you to Donovan Durant again for providing this awesome theme song.